Welcome to the Ninja Tune Podcast with label founders Cole Cut alongside on you sound boss Adrian Sherwood having a chat about the release of their collaborative album Outside the Echo Chamber and plenty of music that has influenced them over the years. After that, it's new music from the Ninja Tune family of labels with Thundercat, Bogus Order, The Bug vs. Earth, Actress and Forest Swords. I'm here, Matt Black, with my partner Jonathan Moore. We are Cold Cut and with the dubmaster Adrian Sherwood just to chat about music and history. I'm Adrian Sherwood on New Sound Records, big fan of Ninja Tune and Cold Cut and all the work they've done for the music over these years. Yes, Jonathan and I came across Adrian first via the music of On You Sound. And when we were in our younger days, those records were unique and a powerful influence on us. Uh, John, what do you think was the first On You Sound that you heard? I think uh, it had to be Prince Farai. Um, that album, which I've got a white label of, actually, which I bought in High Wycombe, which... Um, Adrian knows well. I lived uh, in High Wycombe when I was at art college there back in 1979. And um, the road that I lived on was actually the same road that a pub, quite a famous pub called the Nags Head was on. And also, at the end of that road, um, there was a sort of party place where I went to see Prince Farai. I'm sure Adrian was there as well, doing what they used to refer to as a shabeen. Opportunity change to make a big money, a big bag of African money. Virgin, Virgin, Harry Jumbo. I won't forget you take the master tape and hang it up on yourself. <laughs> Music have no place in it. Gallery. Music have no place in the gallery. Particular eye prints far eye, ugly slant and your character. Oh, 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 John and I actually went to the same um, college, which was uh, High Wycombe Technical College, which is now kind of classified as a uni. Because although I was born in London, I lived in Slough and then High Wycombe from the age of like. Uh, 10 or 11 or something no so like 12 uh, until um, 
I was about 20, and I went, I went to the Tech in 75, um, and left left that year to get involved in the, in the music industry. But where you're talking about, the Nags Head is a very significant pub, because that was run by Ron Watts. And uh, Ron, I actually worked with him, we had a little label for a while in a record shop in Harleston called Sidewalk. And uh, bless his heart, Ron passed recently, I understand, and... Uh, he used to run Uxbridge and Tuesday night at the 100 Club. So he was able to offer a uh, little tour, a mini tour, for like the Sex Pistols, um, the Jam, Generation X. They all played like, um, loads of the bands played the Nags Head. And then they'd play, um, Tuesday would be, they'd play uh, the 100 Club, then they'd play the Nags Head, then they'd finish off by doing Uxbridge on a Friday. That's right, I used to collect glasses there so I could get in. So I, I was very lucky. I saw loads of bands. I saw Generation X play there and Pierre Ubu. I was there that night. Actually. Okay. Yeah, but I didn't. I just went there early on and said hello and left because I was more the reggae boy. But on the same road, they had a blues club that the, 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 the Shubin, as you call it. And uh, the far I link is he probably went there with me because I brought him to High Wycombe a couple of times. He used to go up my mum's and uh, stay at Kelson's, a friend of ours. And I went there a lot of times with Jar Wush, you know, rest in peace as well. He was a lovely fella. And there was, um, in the town at the time, there was a very good scene with the Red Cross Knight and the Clark family across town having blues parties. Yeah, it was a great scene. I mean, I was super lucky, really, to, to experience all of that. So, you know, that was my unknowing introduction to On You Sound at that time, really, pretty early on. What do you think it was about reggae that spoke to you as a young man? There wasn't that many people who understood it or were aware of it at the time. I don't time. think that's really the case. I think I was really lucky because I was uh, in a school um, in High Wycombe. My school had uh, Pakistanis, Indians, um, people from you know, the Bay of Bengal, there was Irish, Italian, Polish. My best friend from school, my two best mates were of uh, English, Polish, and Vincentian English, you know. And um, at the time, we all liked pop music, we all liked soul, and there was a calypso and the reggae coming in. And for me, what got me into it, I'd sit in my mate's um, sister's room while she was doing her hair and the little record player, you know, you'd open the top and put the records Dance on. set style, though. Exactly, she'd have a pile of records. So one minute, you'd be listening to the Maytals. Then you're listening to, um, you know, funky popcorn reggae chicken or some gimmicky record, and then, <laughs> then, the, then you'd play a soul tune. But then, a calypso, you know, the, the motorway all stars, you know, Grenadians, may God bless you, or Sparrow. Then it would be uh, another reggae record, and that, and what got me first was the gimmicky ones. I started, I was more into the, the rude ones, because you, know, you know, like as a young lad, you like all the kind of rude reggae ones, like. Um, Obviously, Prince Buster and then Lloyd Tyrrell, Lloydie and the Low Bites, and Lee Perry, all the kind of rude ones. Like, wow, that's mad. Oh, God, they're not saying that, are they? And then, um, 
then it was the gimmicky ones, then the DJs, and after that I got into the songs. So it started as a kid, I was really into like records with mad intros and um, and soul records and, and like Mungo Jerry. I can and relate to that from a slightly <laughs> less cool standpoint. The record that got me into listening to radio was Benny Hill, Ernie the Milkman. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us, it also was also quite rude. Millie's My Boy Lollipop, wasn't it, as well? But that didn't stay, oh, I've got to follow reggae because of Millie. That was a, that was the first exposure, I think, early 60, you know, 64 or whatever it was. But I think it was the continuity, how it grew and grew. It definitely grew. I mean, one of the first places that I heard reggae was at the fair. So I used to have, in Tame, which was about 13 miles from High Wycombe, where I was born, they'd have a big country fair, and the whole of the town was taken over with a proper fair. I used to have, like, stay in the round for three minutes and win £10 and see oh, the totally, bearded lady. Totally, totally. That. I mean, reggae used to play all the time. Skinhead reggae it was, because right. by that time, you'd got to the faster. You know, it, was, it wasn't scar. The tempos were still faster, and it was, uh, you know, Liquidator and all those tunes. And um... but it's true, also, isn't it, that even I experienced this as a little village in the country, that the fair, Banbury Fair, was the, where the fair used to come. But they used to have great music, and they had some banging sound systems as well, which, you know, that was news to me. I never heard music that loud, and there was something raw and, like you say, rude about it, which was, was that, very attractive. Yeah. And then actually, discos and. You know, the youth club had really crap music by comparison. Those guys were a bit more on the sort of cutting edge, in fact. Yeah, I think it, it's funny because the skinhead reggae was encouraged by the skinhead movement in England, which is kind of a bit misunderstood because I think there was obviously an element of your screwdriver skinheads, you know, the kind of more racist, national front, horrible element. And then you had the other side of it was um, a lot of skins were really into the reggae and moving with a lot of... Uh, you know, young young black lads and stuff. So it wasn't. It's was a bit more. World of Skinhead is a good f- film to watch because that kind of explained what it was like. And you had obviously the nasty element, but it was just kind of raw thing for people to. Ex- I wasn't. I wasn't a skinhead, by the way. I was just. Uh, just lad. now. Yeah. Just now. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gone. the music was a sort of cultural mashdown of all the different types of people in the area and the school where you were living. Totally. I mean, at the time, you know, the, 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 the kids who were like kind of quite um, saw themselves as being, I don't know, kind of, I always saw them as like the, the rich kids from Gerald's Cross or Beaconsfield when I was at college. You know, they were all like um, into like Pink Floyd and stuff. And my Pink Floyd was that one where we were on money, money or whatever it was called. God, this is this is just like not for me. It didn't it didn't move me at all. And they were pretend. Well, to me, I thought they were pretending to like this stuff because it, it was just what on earth is this? Like kind of show off rock and you know. When I was at school, well, early on, you know, the, the pop singles were what you heard mainly. Only later you get into albums when you're a bit older. But pop singles, like you say, My Boy Lollipop, or you know, a record like. 
Dave and Ansel Collins could be a number one record in the UK. A UK, a Jamaican reggae track got to number one in the UK, and that was that was amazing, you know. And that that would be at like the, you know, the um, the school, not what is it, bazaar, you know. The, um, I remember you could like pay 10p and get silence for 10 minutes. That was the headmaster's idea. <laughs> You're right, but my, my memory of the of the you know I'm not banging on about reggae regular because I like other things as well, but. I, it did kind of take take me over, and uh, but I had friends who were listening to like sitting at home listening to like beef art or to love to you know some things I like, some things oh my god let me get out of here quickly you know. It depends and, what the context was though, because I was quite into you know like Emerson Lake and Palmer and a bit of Pink Floyd, and that was sort of I know after the sort of pop single thing, that was what I got into, and then me and my geeky mates were into like building the synthesizer and so on so it sort of interfaced with that but then punk came along and sort of blew the whole thing away and also then like this is 1975 i started a little disco at school and then finding out about soul because sometimes we have to do these discos for you know grown-up friends who give us a gig it's like yeah grown-ups like soul music what is it okay let's try and find some records like that you got so i wasn't in any city or like urban environment where stuff like this was available so soul was ktel Soul Motion, 20 Soul Hits, which actually was a great compilation with the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and the fact that band Do The Bus Stop, which is still one of my favourite all-time tracks. And you got 20 tracks for two quid. So uh, when I think that was the transition for me when I found out, you know, the word funk was something that I only encountered a lot later, but there was something really good time and exciting about that music. probably on a similar path because if you look at England the beauty of it is you, you know you've got the northern soul scene we had that in Farnham yeah, in Surrey there, yeah. but I, I went to Wigan Casino and I met Ruswin Stanley when I was 15 because I was working for Palmer in my summer holidays because the link with Palmer was that Harry Palmer who was like the, the kind of leading of the three brothers like with the he's got a church business now in Jamaica and um, um, <laughs> he, but he lived in High Wycombe yeah, they, and and they were really kind to me, and they and because of Joe Farkerson who ran the Newlands Club, who's like my dad, he he um, he got me a little gig going on a train up around the country promoting. I actually went to Wigan Casino. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the point of the fact all these mad scenes exist and, and still do in England. Yeah, there was lots of crossover as well, which people try and deny these days. But even you know, I remember when punk kind of rolled into town and how. It was, uh, you know, just took over everything for, for a moment. But then it, it massively absorbed lots of different cultures. And, you know, for me, going to Rough Trade to buy records, for example, was where I got into um, culture and 
127's Clash and things like that because you'd go in there to buy the latest independent punk release and there'd be some amazing dub record playing and you'd just have to buy that as well. Steve Jameson, he used to be the, the main man in, in the shop. We used to share a flat together actually on the top of Goldbourne Road in, in there. And he, he, Steve was into, he was a much more wider taste than me, but he was a fanatic about his reggae. The first time I was hearing The Fall and all that was Steve playing um, all those tunes in the shop. And it, was, it was brilliant rough trade. Did right. you listen to John Peel? Of course, yeah. Yeah, because for me, Peel was the, the man who made it cool to be into a lot of different sorts of music. And there was lots of ism and skiven even then, you know, some people say, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm only, I like punk, everything else is crap. But he always rose over that and would play such a diversity of music. I think there's a lot, more than one generation. Well, I think us. John Peel nationally and Steve Barker regionally, you know, right. the two of the most important DJs. and. The, the uh, both very very wide uh, range of things they loved and played, but uh, I, you know I've got to thank John Peel for getting me started. Right. To be quite honest, hundred percent, because the first record I ever made when I was nineteen got released just um, after my twentieth birthday. Um, I was sat, honest to God, this Tuesday I was sat on Westbourne Grove, um, ten o'clock at night because it was one of the only late night supermarkets in those days. There was no late night shopping. This was March 77. I was sat there with, um, so I was, you know, I was 20 years of age. I sat with Prince Farai in the car and turned the radio on. And the first thing he said, John Pitty said, I've just heard the best dub album ever made in England. And he played three tracks, the first three tracks of, of the album back to back. Off your record? Yeah. And Prince Farai, he's laughing at me like this, like, yes, you know, that's nice. And then after that... What an amazing statement to yeah. just bang that out there. Three tracks. No one would ever do that no. now. You know, no. no one would have the guts to do that. And anyway. after that, it kind of got some attention for me. And I had a bit... Of, uh, and I thought, because prior to that, I'd been I'd been in the studio a few times, done a few things, but it certainly gave me the confidence to, uh, and, you know, go and run sessions and experiment, have a, try, and fight, you know, try and find my feet. Thank you. 
it was also a few quid to, when you got played on Radio 1 you used to get like 40 quid a play or something well, I like wasn't, that I didn't even yeah, register them so I didn't get a pence <laughs> but it, does, it didn't matter it was like um, I've been terrible with business over the years but that was secondary it was just like the fact that you're hearing what you've done on, on the radio Amazing. three of them had been bigged up and that that was uh, that was a defining moment for me but Peel you know if you, it wouldn't be me it's like the amount of people that that man got going and careers he, he started and that would without him would never have got that national attention is like total total respect to John Peel yeah it's sadly missed there's no one of that kind of stature around now and it is you know we need we need people like that well it's just I think you know in those days people bought records they don't need to so much anymore <laughs> and also the power of you know one show it was like with the reggae music right? what people don't realise again is that when in that same period the only reggae show started that, that, that really mattered was um, on a Sunday and it was Steve Bernard and there was a show called Reggae Time on uh, BBC Radio London and I can remember it now. He used to start off, and it, 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 but he wasn't even Jamaican. You know, so a lot of the Jamaicans resented him. But he started the show, and it would be, you know, to BBC Radio London, a 94.3 VHF to a six, a medium wave. This is reggae time. This is how he spoke, right? And um, we all gathered round on a Sunday, and I think then they upped the show to an hour. But that was literally the only show. So that got such a lot of attention from the community who loved reggae. And then John Peel suddenly playing on a national level, he turned so many people onto it. It's un- unreal. And prior to that, it had literally been, you went to buy the stuff in High Wycombe, the compilations were 99p, in a, and it was almost looked on a second-rate music. It was only when it started getting promoted and handled by bigger labels and packaged properly and given some respect. With the kind of punk new wave thing and the reggae thing, there was two connections really the sort of outsiderness in one respect and the fact that a lot of the reggae world and the punk new wave world were independent yeah do it yourself world definitely that was something that i was really attracted to and something you know with those on you sound records that the do-it-yourselfness about them was was really attractive the graphics were great they weren't like other records you know i remember the fact that the release date was it Ten years ahead, yeah. That was just wicked. I always thought that was brilliant. Doesn't work now because people look at them and think they were made in '91 instead of '80. That's true. That's true.
think we had we had a lot of continuity because Kishi did all the artwork um, and as well as playing on lots of the records. But we used to put on them. Uh, a 1991 on your sound production, an 81. It's like boastful. So you were ahead of your time. Yeah. Ahead of your time. <laughs> Are you talking about the graphic design of the On You records? Because I, me and my mates used to collect those records as each one came out. And those, those black and white sleeves, especially the 10 inch sleeves, because yeah. it wasn't, I don't think we'd ever seen a 10 inch record before. And it was just so cool. And it really had an identity. And I think that's definitely when we started Ninja Tune we realised we wanted something that worked as well as that because we could see how, how powerful it was. Yours has worked people. a lot better than mine if it did. <laughs> well, I don't and know, without, on you sound, there would be no Ninja Tune. I can say that straight up. Well, it's undoubtedly true. Well, yeah, yeah, something like that is worth more than um, anything because at least a bit of respect. So. Well, you can trace it all back, can't you? You know, people come up and say, hey, Ninja Tune, you got me into making music. And they say, well, it's on you. And, you know, you can trace it back as well. But I think, like John was saying, there's always a certain section of the population which are up for something a little bit different and that is sort of jointly been our audience and what we've worked with really maybe it's out of just a sort of certain ordinary attitude that you know we don't want to drink from the mainstream maybe it's there's a certain snobbery there i can think me and my mates realized that we were, we'd got some music that not very many other people had got, so we were cool, you know, and so we would put a lot of effort into seeking those records out, and and uh, it, was a, it was a scene. But I think there was also something authentic there that we resonated with, that we wanted something that was different, something that was more edgy, and, uh, yeah, something that we could identify with. People, young people are always looking for something to identify with. Often music can be style and fashion as well and other things. But one doesn't want to be ground down by the great Babylon's sort of steamroller of monoculture, right? I think the ability, well, the thing, you, you know, the pair of you, apart from being very good, is you, um, lo- you know, you've got to love what you do. If you're kind of doing stuff, I was confronted all that time where people would say to you oh why don't you go and make a record like that so you can finance to do what you really want to do and um th- that is a, surely like a not not you know i understand the principle because a lot of the time you're teetering on the edge of being broke but i kept thinking what i was doing was about to explode i didn't think it would st- I, I, th- I always thought i'd add a naught to the end but never quite managed now um with 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 you guys, you you know you're right on it. You've you know you know you, I got handed it to you, and I think what you've done is amazing. You make you got such a, a back catalogue of amazing tunes you've made, and you know I, I'm proud of what I've done, and think I have as well. And I, I just sure, think man. the difference between you know somebody says to me who's your favourite singer. If I name my favourite singers, they haven't reached the height sales wise that perhaps what makes them send shivers up my spine and makes me love them would work for a next person so when you've combined things by having junior reed or other great contributors to cold cut and you've got the people you lo- you love having with you and whatever and you know the, com- the, the great combinations you've made it's like yeah respect absolutely respect you know i've done the same thing but um i think we were definitely you know the whole cold cut mashup thing was definitely inspired by on you and it's something i actually haven't spoken with you about before that I'd like to ask about which was that you represent a very interesting crossing over point 
between various scenes. So when we made a go-go record, a go-go... Washington. Washington, D.C. Yeah. It's, again, it's a sort of underground, trouble indigenous, funk. trouble yeah. funk, uh, Petworth crew, you know, Reds and the Boys, all those. But it's very much a D.C. black music. And again, very small releases, local scene. is a really funky big sound so to put junior reed a reggae vocalist on that was something that you know it was a kind of on you combination right Robin Sherman or right yeah. so how did it happen that you work with all these amazing new york hip-hop musicians the guys who were the sugar Hill gang keith leblanc skip mcdonald doug wimbish these guys who played on a whole slew of seminal New York hip-hop records. And when we did that gig at the Jazz Cafe the other day, I had to drop that Malcolm X, Keith LeBlanc. I mean, what a tune. No where we first met that tune was really was, he was making yeah, well, it, t- yeah. tell us about that because the, what, what I'm getting at is there's that and then we would get these records and they'd have all these Jamaican musicians on as well and we were fascinated by that idea well for me it was just um, one one progression after another one link after another I remember Bad Brains the band Bad Brains yeah they, their first release was on a cassette on ROIR Reach Out International Records which was run by uh, Neil, who's uh, uh, arrested his soul now, Neil's, uh, Neil Cooper. And Neil, interestingly, had worked with worked for Haile Selassie as well. And he'd be used to go on aeroplanes with him and all this like stuff. And it was really interesting, which appealed to a lot of the Jamaicans. And uh, anyway, Neil um, approached me to license, this is in the 80s, like Crytuff Dub Chapter 1. And I gave him a, a, a dub syndicate record I made in an evening called One Way System. It was a bit crap, but it's got a couple of good tunes on it. Anyway, the first tune I ever did with a drum machine, um, Steve Beresford programmed, and we did with a band called Akabu, called Watch Yourself. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, well, that's the first time I ever, time I ever went digital because I'd always like working with live musicians. So all the early on stuff's all live or experimental cut-up stuff like Geisen or Burroughs kind of school. Were you aware of that beat generation stuff then? I got introduced to it. You see, I, I'm, I was, I, you know, I left school. Uh, you know, I was barely, I was 16. I didn't have. I'm not. I really, really frustrate myself by sometimes I meet somebody intelligent like you, Matt. And <laughs> no, no, but I, and I, I kind of like feel a bit inadequate because I, was, I learned stuff by being amongst good people. So I, I was first with Mark Stewart, who's my dear friend, who in, obviously influenced me a lot. And he introduced me a lot to a lot of this stuff. I then got friends like yourself or. Steve Barker, who turned me on to other things and whatever, you know, and I've got old head friends who turned me on to, you know, the people like Chris Joyce and the Mothmen and all that lot, they're, they're all, you know, Bob Harding who started um, the, the label from Mick Hucknall there, the Blood and Fire and all that, they, they, they were all into like Beefheart and they, they were playing that, so I got to appreciate other things as I went along. I particularly asked you about that beatnik thing, so it is interesting because you know, it's not necessarily something that would be in the mix of the other things that you mentioned. That came from from more from Mark Stewart, and we right. were at the time by '81 when we were doing, um, which I still think is one of the, one of our great albums. That the '82 doing uh, Learning to Cut with Cowardice and tape cut-ups and collages and all that. That was really we had tapes of um, Burroughs that we were listening to and Brian Geisen and everything else and. It was just logical because we were doing tape manipulation. I definitely re- reach yeah. back to those as yeah, originators yeah. and yeah. fed into a lot to what we were doing as well. But you know, I, I'm we're all of us ignorant. There's so much out there to know. Not only any of us can only know a little bit of it. I remember I knew Burroughs was, and I'd read Naked Lunch and found it very funny. Actually, he's a very funny writer. He's not often given credit for that. But the sound experiments and the idea of um, cut up lyrics and yeah. stuff, I didn't. I didn't really get it. Didn't really understand what cut up was. It was only later. I remember doing some interviews with Cold Cut when we started and started to get some when people were interviewing us and they were saying, well, what, you know, how do you relate this back to cut up? I was like, uh, and then so I read up on it a bit and started to find out a little bit more. But it is interesting to, tra- if you could trace it back. We, we were experimenting with that and at the same time in New York, Keith had obviously been cutting up Malcolm X. And there were other people. There was Double D and Steinsky, yeah. who, I, who I met. Yeah. Um, oh, wow, you met them, did you? I was. No. I spent. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time with Steinsky. He was a lovely, really yeah, nice fellow. Yeah, he's a good friend of ours as yeah. well. I mean, I'd say he that those records are the biggest influence. Well, well you mentioned mentioned to him, you know, like we went a couple of good nights, and he he was a fan of Starship Africa, which was the second record I ever made when I was twenty, and it's still. Um, it's actually being re-released this year, um, and uh, we're going to do some gigs actually with, with the remaining members of Croatian Rebel.
Neil Cooper, um, I sent him a cassette of the um, Akabu, and he started, oh, look, I'm going to play this to Tommy Boy, because I think Tommy Boy... I was just about to ask about Tommy And Tommy yeah. Boy started a new label called Body Rock, and I ended up going to New York for the first time at Tommy's expense and staying with him in his flat. Him Tom his Silverman? Then, yeah, him and his wow. then wife, Robin. Well, I was there when that, that all that period, 80, 84, I think, for the first time. And then, anyway, I went to, I went to New York, and... Um, Tommy took me in the studio and he was overdubbing Keith on live drums. He had to make a tune with Edgar Winter. He's doing live drums. I thought, geez, that fella's hot. And Mark uh, Stewart was particularly saying, I'll try and see these guys. They're amazing, they're amazing. He's mentioning Keith and Doug and everybody. And then Harry Up was going to me, oh, that's some new stuff. I love this, I love this. She loved the reggae. She was a complete reggae obsessive, but she was also massively going on about the, the, the scene coming out of New York at the time. Uh, you know, and Nene Cherry, because we've been um, sharing a house together. We were, we were squatting together with Nene, Junior Williams, and Ari and myself. And she was go- she was like going between New York and back. You know, um, and by this time she'd like was doing quite well. So it was like kind of the New York thing was was kind of quite um, really really bubbling. And I was I was lucky enough to go there. And Tommy had taken over. Ed Bauman had a company called Nine Nine Records, and which is a very good label. And he'd released War of Words for me, as well as lots of other kind of seminal, um, call it what you will, um, post-punk stuff, you know. And he ran a thing called the New Music Seminar, and then Tommy had taken it over. So it all came to a place that um, I went to New York on this trip. And I was also staying with Keith Levine, who, who I'd known from... Um, you know, from like kind of 1980 as well. So he was like by then living in New York. So I was, I was just a very lucky bloke. I'm, I was just some really good people. at the right time it's fascinating hearing you mention like Nana Cherry and Keith Levine and so on Rip Rig and Panic we supported them one time at a, a gig at Scamps in Oxford and I had my little student band but there you know there was a cutting edge of post-punk and there was an interest in reggae and dub techniques you know Public Image Limited Metal totally, Box totally. that was an amazing yeah. sort of trip really into a new type of uh, fusion just expand a bit more on the Keith, Doug and Skip connection because I do find that fascinating. Well, I arrived in, in New York on the first trip. I'd seen Keith uh, doing the, the drumming and he had just got out Malcolm X, no sellout. He'd dealt with Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife. But because he'd, he'd um, I think, got the vocal recordings from Sugar Hill, they were trying to sue him and sue Tommy Boy. So there was a court case going on. Well, Skip, if you mention the name Sugar Hill, Skip point blank refuses. There's no way you're going to get him on one of those um, review shows. But at the time this was going on, so there was a bit of tension because like, there was a court case going on. Keith was having to go to court. Tommy's lawyers were paying for it to make sure, you know, whatever. And Keith and me, you know, I said to Keith, 
you know, look, you know, I explained to him I'd been running a label of my own since 17, and he couldn't believe it. I said, well, look, what, do you want to come to London and uh, we'll do a little bit of work? So the first trip, Keith came on his own. But on the, on the trip, the, 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 the next trip I made, which was to the New Music Seminar, on the second trip when I um, brought him over, I got introduced then to Skip. Um, it was sat on the bed in the hotel room with the A&R man who had Twisted Sister. It was totally pissed in the hotel room. I thought, God, what's going on here? And Skip was like completely stoned on the bed. And then Dougie came in and we all hung out. And then there was like all this bit O.C. Rodriguez, you know, piece PKO records out of Harlem and all these, all these like characters and uh, Duke Booty who wrote the message, Melly Mel and all that like, were all hovering at the seminar. So there's like a lot of, um, uh, I think, KRS-One, all that kind of, those people all around. Do you remember that Mutant Disco record? That must have been around because it was the first time yeah. I was in New York was also yeah. around that period. I do, yeah. yeah. And the weird thing was at the same seminar, I met Billy Bragg. And Billy, Billy Bragg, he was walking around the seminar and he had a, uh, a guitar. And each time I meet him, I remind him of it. But he had this pole tied to his back and a speaker on his head and a guitar and a microphone. He was driving around and he was playing his guitar and he was literally singing in the faces of record execs, abusing them. He was absolutely brilliant. Although <laughs> I like him. Yeah. Um, the Fall in common because we work with Marky e. Smith and you've done some stuff for The Fall haven't you as well how did you find that working with that wonderful fella well it was great I mean the thing was I, I tried to do something with the thing and he, he, I learnt a lot from him cause likewise because he, he it, like with us, it's like loads of delay, reverbs, phasing, mad effects, mashing things up, distortions. He wanted it dry, so that you got the power of the playing and the riff and everything. Like he's in a real certain school of production at the time. And we always got on well. I, I used to stay up with him in Prestwich quite a lot with um, Kishi and that, when he was with Kay Carroll and the older lover story, you know, yeah. the older lover thing. And when he come to do the Slates 10-inch, which was... Uh, I actually went to the studio with you to doing a lot of it with Grant, you know, Grant Showbiz, and um, I worked on one of the tracks on the record. But I was trying to get create an, an ambience, and the band loved it, and Mark wasn't having any of it. He was like, no, no. <laughs> but then I ended up doing some tracks on Extricate, and he voiced, he voiced 
a version of Repetition for us for um, Tackhead. And I've done a couple of tunes with him and uh, you know, I'm a fan. I think his, his lyrics are just, just amazing. First proper English rapper, in my opinion, and again we were we learnt a lot from him. You know, he's very very specific in the studio, very much like you do this, you do it this way. We've got a wonderful letter from him, which I think he signs off: "Don't trust the SSL," which is a, a particular make of uh, studio deck. Yeah, and um, yeah, we set. He wanted to get do his vocals, and he he just charged it around the booth, so he's like all over the shop in the booth. So. If I recall, we set up like a circle of mi- different microphones and gave him a, a loud hailer, oh, which right, he loved, yeah, yeah. which was a bit of a mistake because he spent quite a lot of time on the loud hailer, which was driving the engineer completely potty. But, you know, that's Marky Smith. You learn from him. He's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and no, I've, I've, uh, I've got quite a few uh, tales of him, but he's, he's um, he, you know, a proper original. And I think he still made the best record about the music industry in the English Deer Park. Still my favourite um, industry statement. Do you know that song? Spare a thought for the sleeping promo depth. They haven't had an idea for two years. Deutschmarks keep those wankers on their feet. Have you been to the English Deer Park? It's where the old folk congregate in the dark. It's a quick. Spare a thought for the sleeping promo depth. They haven't had an idea in two years. Dollars and Deutschmarks keep the company on its feet. John and I made this track called Stop This Crazy Thing, which was like a go-go backing track but with a reggae vocal from Junior Reed on top which is a pretty mad mixture and I can say the sort of thing that On You might have done it's like well who can remix this who would really get it Sherwood let's see if we can meet him so we did that was the first time we met I remember coming up to your studio and having an initial rap review and digging in a little bit because as we were just saying it's nice getting to know you because the more we hang out we find that there's all these roots if you like tangled roots which all sort of cross-linked together and it, it, it's fascinating but you know you, you did a, a wicked mix for us you rock, you rock. 
stop this crazy thing. Quite difficult to find now, that, that, that remix. I've got two copies of it if you want. Sadly, though, we can't find the original vocal that Junior Reed recorded at the moment. It's not on the 24 track. Somehow it got wiped. So if you had a copy of that, I'd be really happy. <laughs> so we had that mix and, uh, you know, we've crossed paths over the years, but it's last year we got together properly to work on a project, which is uh, coming up shortly. Being fans of uh, Jamaican stuff, this one's like just a, a perfect meeting place, isn't it? We did uh, that gig together at the Jazz Cafe a couple of weeks ago, and you had another roots connection. My man Dennis Bavel there playing bass. Now he produced my first ever record when I was at uni. And he mixed mine. Actually, I wanted to feature a track of his that I wa dubbed. Him and you, and I guess Mad Professor were the sort of three dons who were actually doing it from, from time. And it's a pretty wild experimental record, definitely a big influence as well. Well, Dennis is, is so talented, it's uh, it's scary. I mean, you, you're not going to like everything he does, perhaps, but um, you know, he puts his heart and soul in everything, and, he, and his talent, you can, you can hear his arrangements, his mixing skills. He's very musical. He's, he's outrageous. Uh, you mentioned Ari Up from The Slits, right? He did their first album. Huh? He did the pop groups, and he did the pop groups' first album. He's almost so. a parallel... Fi- well, you know him pretty well, right? You know, there's very well, yeah. That, 
Dennis Bavel is a UK producer, particularly into dub, but in the late 70s, 80s, he produced some very interesting sort of post-punk records for groups like the Pop Group and the Slits. Orange Juice to a fellow Cootie. He worked, he worked with Marvin Gaye. Really? You have another Marvin Gaye story with Dennis Bavel? No. I can't really repeat it on here. But the, the master tape got lost. But it involves like... Um, it involves drugs and uh, women and Mars and Dennis having to go back and forth from the studio where Marvin was going, I can't hear enough Marvin. And he had like 10 vocals and Den- Dennis had to, in those days there was no recall. You've got to get Dennis Bavel to tell you the thing because it's his story, aren't we? I Please didn't know you worked with Marvin Gaye. That's he worked, worked with Marvin Gaye, did a record with him and the master tape got nicked off the back seat of the car after Marvin had gone to Belgium. Ouch. <sighs> Lost forever. Hey mate, if you're that... Uh person with that tape come on you can stick it, it is Marvin there. on there yes yes but that's no Dennis Bavel Dennis Bavel should write a but book again you but, know that's um, an incredible my God. sort of yeah. junction between punk dub new wave experimentation the independent attitude and um yeah just a, a brilliant sort of UK mashup of stuff basically but yeah, so it was great to meet him again after many years at that gig that we did. I've been to a couple of gigs of yours now where you flashed some of the tracks which we've done together. Yeah, my pressure but we not give up. Dying in the grip, but we not squeeze up. Every day, Babylon bring another sunshine. Every day, Emma bring another sunshine. Real warriors, say we not give up. Real warriors, why? Adrian has a fantastic studio down in Ramsgate and we were lucky enough to get Skip McDonald from the original Posse to play on some of the tracks and he's a wicked musician and just a great head to have around, isn't he, John? Yeah, it's fantastic working with Skip. I love him, he's wonderful. He's got such a great ear. He, again, he can tell you stories all day long, but I mean, Skip, Skip goes back to blues heritage with his father and he's um, you know he's played with the Isley Brothers with um, you know the list with him, with him you know George Clinton him a personal friend he's played with absolutely everybody from um, Edwin Starr to you know he just goes on and on and on Bobby Blue Bland you know he's one of his favourite singers um, and then obviously straight through the funk stuff and um you know, he rediscovered the blue stuff with his Little Axe project and you know, a really humble, brilliant, incredibly talented person. He's just fantastic. He's got one of the best years I've experienced in the music 
recording world and um, you know, it was a great pleasure to get him to play guitar to help us with the arrangements to help us with the, particularly with some of the songs working out how to um, you know do the harmonies for example that we did with Ghetto Priest who's also another killer vocalist from the Ramsgate area got a new tune out well he's London but he's living Is there it? now okay. yeah. we're building we're, we're colonising <laughs> Ramsgate at the moment Sticky Top is a very fortunate to get to get Doug to come and play a bit of bass. He happened to be over from America, didn't he? Yeah, I love that track. In this wicked place and bass on a track called Metro. Uh, I think we've got a little video clip of him somewhere which was put up on the socials at some point with him bouncing along to that. That was amazing. Doug Wimbush was playing bass on this track and he's got his pedals and sort of using his wah-wah bass effect. And I was thinking like, yeah, this is amazing. It sounds kind of like white lines. And Adrian pointed out that actually as Doug did play the bass on white lines. Yes. Right? So that's why. Uh, but yeah, so you've got an amazing pool of musicians. I've got to give a plug to I- Ivan the Cello Man as well. Ivan Cello Man, what, a, what an amazing star he is. Fantastic. He's totally lushed up some of the tracks. The Kajra Mohabbat, the sort of Bollywood cover that we've done, he's amazing on that. Mind you, it really took off when you put that uh, eventide effect that sort of distorted and fuzzed it out. So it's like a cello yeah. synth distortion trip. Yeah, that is I love an it. excellent I love turn. It. Yeah, well, well, Roots Manoeuvre, um, well, I was lucky enough to work on, on um, his last album, Bleeds, and got to know Rodney and just watch him working firsthand. Like, abs- you know when you work with great artists, you know, and yeah. that, that man's an absolute absolute star. I just, uh, For me, I, certainly yeah. one of the leading poets in no, the he's, UK. No, he's outrageous, he's outrageous, and, it, you know... It, it, 
he made friends everywhere he went, whether he was amongst us a lot, and he left a really big impression. His lyrical take is pretty unique because he really, he's got that bittersweet thing going on. It's not about, hey, look at me, I'm this incredible rich rapper. You know, it's everyone else's crap. That's the message of 99% of rap, but Rodney is a lot more honest, I feel, about what the nature of existence is really like and how twisted up it can be. He's a very spiritual fella and when when he was with us he was he was helping people, local people who didn't know who he was. He was he made an impression on quite a few people who didn't know he had anything to do with what you know music and then other people who did he gave them all time, encouragement and then when it comes to actually delivering stuff he, he's a poet, you know, he's, he's proper. Yeah and it's not easy living in that territory as well because you're sort of on the edge and it can be pretty sharp so bless up roots maneuver and we've got yeah. uh, vitals i think that track's wicked actually really heavy track so i love that track yeah safe <laughs> are so basic but many men cannot face this they try to erase this they try to displace this with a fossil fuel consumption that causes mass dysfunction when mother earth and the universe is full of pure abundance we look ahead with a head for the venom ball distraction at source push the pen and call word sign on power to jump into the fore align it to that core and find the hardcore we are So yeah, we've been enjoying um, experimenting and playing with sound down in Ramsgate. And those tracks had to sort of origins in various places, but we thought that you could. Yeah, I think what we've done, we've put, them, we've put everything together and it sounds like one really good piece of work. So, uh, I mean, the proof's in the pudding, but that, that to me is, you know, I'm, I'm really glad it's coming out now because it's, um, I'd have been really upset if it, had, if it hadn't done. <laughs> But it's it's uh, it's time for it now because it's, uh, it's it, coming it's out. Wonderful. So yeah. we're planning to do a sort of lush um, seven-inch box set. I love that. Of eight seven inches for a starter, so that'll be a nice collector's item for the vinyl heads. And also, there'll be a CD and digital as well. And I never believed when I was listening to those records when I was a student sitting around with my mates, getting high and listening to all this stuff that one day I'd be standing next to Adrian Sherwood actually on the desk and pressing the odd button and you were join, mixing away yourself down yeah, there you were it, a, it was great so of, yeah. look forward to doing doing more stuff with yeah you. hopefully yeah I'd love to do some gigs and things I had a really really smashing time the other day at the, our dub sessions at the um, at the jazz cafe and hopefully hopefully you guys will be doing some gigs and we'll join on some of them that together be yeah so it was what we say London LA JA Ramsgate hey <laughs> so Our thanks to Colcut and Adrian Sherwood for that. Their album, Outside the Echo Chamber, is released on Ahead of Our Time. Now we turn our attention to some of the new releases coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels, starting with the mighty Thundercat and the track Walk On By featuring Kendrick Lamar. From eyewitness binoculars to Argentina and Africa, we mastered the pressure. 
hazardous, harassing us, you laugh at us, my career at bag of dimes, now we bag of rhymes, body bags, price tags on your forehead, nine times out of ten, young us again, nine or ten, when that line becomes thin, be a killer or fireman, fill up the lavish pen if I needed to right my wrongs, I can't deny sin, condolences through these palms, I remember when your cousin was coming home, my bitch, but we plotted to kill him cause we ain't norm, unfamiliar faces, means I get nervous, convicted court cases might hit the surface, restricted territories might come through lurking, we ain't want none of that urgent call, llama at turban for all of my identity, Percocets for all the headaches I'm about to bring, confetti, tumble out this barrel soon as it ring, you ready? That was the word for we moved on them, treat them like Joe the plumber, I wonder if someone coming can see this tool on them, immature and retarded is what you call me, your cousin won't come home from the pen but from the army, if I can write my wrongs, the pen is first I read, even though a bullet hit him in the leg, still walk on by. Thundercat with Walk On By from the album Drunk and that's out on Brave Feeder. Next it's Bogus Order with Waiting On Your Call taken from the new album Zen Breaks Volume 2. order with waiting on your call which is released on ahead of our time now it's time for the bug versus earth and a track called don't walk these streets coming out on ninja tune
That was The Bug vs Earth and Don't Walk These Streets from their forthcoming album Concrete Desert. Up next it's a track from Actress called Extreme which is coming out on Ninja Tune. with Extreme, taken from the new album, as it coming out on Ninja Tune. Finally, it's a huge return from Forest Swords, with his first studio release since 2013's Engravings LP. This is The Highest Flood, which is out on Ninja Tune.
That was Forest Swords with the highest flood, which is out on NinjaTube. Our thanks once again to Colcut and Adrian Sherwood, and we'll be back soon with another edition of the NinjaTune podcast.